0: As we continue to worship together, we're going to turn our attention now to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. You'll you'll find Luke's gospel in the New Testament. It's just past Matthew and Mark and just before the gospel of John. As just a brief reminder, Luke, the, the author of this account of Jesus' life and ministry, he was a physician. He was also a companion of the Apostle Paul, and he was the author of the book of Acts. This morning, we're going to look at Luke 22, verses 7 through 20. I'd ask now that you would stand together with me for the reading. Luke 22, beginning in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. comes and he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me and likewise the cup after they had eaten saying this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood this is the word of the lord let's pray together Heavenly Father, we we come to you today as a needy people. We need guidance. We need truth. We, We need life. Remind us this morning that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only Savior, our only Savior. And so as we see Jesus today, May we leave this place not just informed, but genuinely transformed, God, by your word and your spirit and by the good news of the gospel. We pray all of this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to assume this morning that most of us here know all about, and have probably participated in the great American rite of passage known as show and tell. You remember show and tell from elementary school, don't you? On the designated day, your designated day, you had to bring something weird or cool or personally significant to your class. Then you, you had to show your classmates that something and tell your classmates, all about it. Here in Luke 22, Jesus is engaging his disciples in a grand, eternally significant kind of show and tell. The show and tell in this passage is closely tied to the Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper. And and given the importance of both of those events, we need to make sure that we understand that the bigger picture here in Luke 22. We need to remember where we are in the life and ministry of Jesus and where we are in the overall narrative of the Bible. If you've been following along with us for a while, then you'll know that Jesus is drawing very, very near to death at this point in Luke's gospel. Jesus has been back in Jerusalem for several days now. And we're on the very eve of the crucifixion itself. In God's divine timing, Jesus' death is going to coincide with the Passover season. And as a result, we we find Jesus celebrating the Passover meal here with his disciples. As you may know, the, the Passover was a time of grand remembrance for the Jewish people. In the early chapters of Exodus, way back in the Old Testament, God tells Moses that he is going to bring the long-enslaved Jews out of Egypt through a series of signs and wonders. The final sign, or the tenth plague, would bring death to all the firstborn children and animals in the land. Just prior to this great judgment, God institutes the Passover to protect his covenant people from the covenant destruction the families of Israel had to kill a spotless lamb and paint the blood of that lamb around the doorways of their homes. The families would then eat the meat of the lamb alongside bitter herbs, a simple kind of unleavened bread, and several cups of wine. When God moved through the land of Egypt that night, His divine wrath passed over those homes that were marked with the blood. Now, fast forward with me to Jesus' lifetime. The Jewish people had been celebrating the Passover for over 1,500 years. Every single time those families sat down to eat the lamb and the bread and the herbs, every single time they took the cup of wine up, they were being forced to remember God's saving work. He provided a sacrifice He gave protection, and he secured real freedom. In the verses before us this morning, Jesus is celebrating the Passover, to be sure. But he is also fulfilling and changing the Passover. The sharing of the bread and the cup become the sacrament of the Lord's Supper here in Luke 22. The the Supper points us back to the death of Christ, It genuinely unites us to Christ by faith here in the present. And it pushes us toward the hope that we have of heaven. The Lord's Supper described for us here is to be enjoyed by all those who look to Christ, the final Lamb of God, by faith. As we make our way through these verses together today, we do need to understand the Passover and the Lord's Supper. But we also need to be careful, and here's why. So often, we can get sidetracked with details, and we miss the bigger point. Let me say it this way. These verses are not about the particulars of a sacrament. That's not their ultimate purpose. This passage, like all of Scripture, is a showcase of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so to that end, we're going to look at three distinct aspects of Jesus' person and work together. We'll see that Jesus is a sovereign Savior. He's a sacrificial Savior. And finally, Jesus, even today, is a sympathetic Savior. First, Jesus Christ is a sovereign Savior. You could actually argue that the sovereignty of Jesus is the main theme in this passage. Jesus is in control of every moment, every circumstance, and actually every person in this story. He's dictating the terms. You probably noticed during the reading just a while ago that Jesus displays an incredible kind of sovereignty over the planning of the Passover. In verse 8, near the very beginning of our passage, Jesus tells Peter and John to go and prepare the Passover. But the disciples, they respond with a good and honest question in verse 9. Where will you have us prepare it? We need to remember, Jesus and his disciples were were sojourners. They didn't have access to large spaces or or abundant resources. So the confusion expressed by Peter and John is completely legitimate. They have no idea how they are supposed to obey Jesus' commands. But look at Jesus' response with me again, beginning in verse 10. Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. Jesus gives Peter and John a detailed play by play. He says, in essence, here's exactly how this is going to go down, guys. And what happened? The disciples went into the city, and they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 13, is it's meant to make us sit up and take notice. We're not just dealing with any ordinary man here in Luke 22. Jesus is in command of Every single detail surrounding the preparation of this Passover meal. He knows the people and he knows the place. But there's more in this story about the sovereignty of Jesus as it continues forward. We need to recognize that Jesus is also sovereign over the purpose of the Passover. Now now what, what does that mean? Sovereign over the purpose of the Passover. Jesus begins eating the meal with his disciples in verse 14. And then as the meal progresses, Jesus starts issuing some unusual and powerful statements. Look at verse 16 with me again. For I tell you, I will not eat of it, that's the Passover, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 18, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then things get even more interesting in verses 19 and 20. Jesus took bread saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup saying, This, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, many of us recognize, especially if we're familiar with the church, we recognize that Jesus here is transforming the Passover into the sacrament of the Lord's Supper with these statements. But but don't let the familiarity of these phrases lull you to sleep. Consider what Jesus is actually telling us. Jesus looks his disciples square in the face and says, The Passover meal has always been about something and someone greater. Now, don't get me wrong. The exodus from G- Egypt w- was a remarkable event. God delivered an entire nation from generational slavery by truly miraculous means. But God has always, always been about something greater. The Passover is ultimately about Jesus and the eternal freedom that he secures for men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's why Jesus proclaims, this is my body, as he distributes the bread. That's why Jesus tells the disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He is the final Passover lamb. He perfectly satisfies the full wrath of God. He brings lasting freedom from sin and death and hell. He secures everlasting life for all those who look to him by faith. And one day, Jesus Christ will fully and completely fulfill the Passover when the kingdom of God is fully consummated in the new heavens And the new earth. In that time and in that place, all believers will be gathered together at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. We will feast with Christ, free from the trials and temptations and disappointments and pain and longings of this life. Just consider the absolute sovereignty that Jesus Christ is displaying as he celebrates the Passover and institutes the Lord's Supper. He is claiming his rightful authority over all of human history. Jesus is sovereign over the details of the moment as the disciples prepare the meal. He's sovereign over the whole of time and space in his fulfillment of the Passover. You see, Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is in complete control as he moves toward the cross. He's in full command from the garden all the way to glory because he is the sovereign savior. There's a beautiful example of sovereignty in C.S. Lewis' novel, The Horse and His Boy. I want to pick up the story for you this morning where we find the main character, Shasta. He's pouring out his heart, his confusion, his sorrow to a powerful presence known to him only as the voice. Shasta told the voice how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives. And of all their dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey, and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus, and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two lions the first night, and... There was only one, but he was swift afoot. How do you know I was the lion? And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. In Lewis's account, the voice, the one great lion, Aslan, is perfectly sovereign. He is in control of every event and every character in the entire story. And he is in personal control of Shasta's life, even when the boy is slow to see and understand. Jesus is the Passover lamb, yes, but he is also the great lion. Jesus sees you. He knows you. And if this morning you are looking to Christ by faith, then know that he is tirelessly working to put together all things for your good. Know that he has given you this meal in the Lord's Supper to remind you of his power and his goodness. Even in the midst of a pandemic, yes. In the midst of widespread civil unrest, yes. In the midst of all the deep personal disappointments that you are carrying this morning, yes. Yes in the midst of your constant fear, in the midst of your confusion, your doubts, and your struggles. Yes, even in the midst of your sin. Yes, because we serve a sovereign Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ controls every detail of our lives, and He can be trusted with every detail of our lives. You can trust Him this morning with your family, your health, your finances, your school year, and even your eternal destiny. As we continue to prepare ourselves for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, let me just encourage you to worship Christ for his sovereignty. And in that worship, let us trust him and rest in him. The sovereignty of Jesus, it's certainly a central theme here in Luke 22, but there are a couple of additional attributes of Jesus that we need to see as well. Let's remember that Jesus Christ is also a sacrificial Savior. I realize that this is a familiar point, but let's make sure we give it our full attention. Listen to the beginning of verse 15 again. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus tells his disciples that his body will be given and that his blood will be poured out. As this story unfolds, we come to know that Jesus is going to give up his life. He's going to die a sacrificial death. If you've been with us here in Luke for a while, then the coming death of Jesus should really come as no surprise. He's told his disciples about the crucifixion on at least three different occasions, Consider Luke 18, verses 31 through 33. And taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ... It's not a happenstance or a coincidence or an advantageous accident. Jesus chose. He chose to come and die even before the foundation of the world. His is a willing and sufficient sacrifice. Just a few hours removed from this Passover meal, Jesus is going to bear God's wrath for the eternal salvation of his people. As we look in on Jesus passing the bread and the cup, we should remember the words of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We do well here to ask why. Why would Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and the perfect Son of God, willingly die a shameful, excruciating death For sinful people like us. Hear the words of John's gospel account. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus sacrificed his body and his blood for our good because he loves his people with a steadfast, everlasting love. As the Jesus Storybook Bible puts it, it's a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. Brothers and sisters, we need to know that Jesus is committed to promoting our greatest good at any and all cost to himself. Jesus does whatever it takes He even endured the cross as our sacrificial savior. Disney Pixar's coming-of-age story Inside Out debuted in the summer of 2015. It opened in theaters just a week or so before our annual middle school trip to RYM. It's been our tradition during that week to take our students uh, to a movie in the middle of that week. So on that fateful Wednesday... A 30-year-old Matthew led 26th through 8th graders into the movie. Now, if you're not familiar with Inside Out, then there are a few things you should know. First, it is an amazing movie. Second, the plot of the film centers on an adolescent girl named Riley who's experiencing the real trauma of a cross-country move. Third, the conflict in the story involves Riley's primary emotions, especially joy and sadness. And fourth, I'm about to ruin this entire movie for you. Near the beginning of the film, Joy and Sadness, who are personified as two female characters, they get lost in Riley's internal memory banks. In order to save Riley from a deep and growing darkness, Joy and Sadness have to make their way back to headquarters with her core memories. On their journey, they meet Riley's old imaginary friend, Bing Bong. Bing Bong is part clown, part elephant, and part cotton candy, and and he is deeply, deeply afraid of being completely forgotten as Riley grows up. Through a terrible turn of events, Joy and Bing Bong end up falling into the memory dump, the place where thoughts and ideas are permanently erased from Riley's mind. It's a really gripping moment because it's the realization of Bing Bong's greatest fear. Over the next three minutes, we watch Bing Bong and Joy make attempt after a futile attempt at freeing themselves from the memory dumped on, on a magic flying wagon. And then, as they take one final shot at freedom, it happens. Bing Bong jumps out of the wagon. So joy can reach the safety of higher ground. The camera pans back to Bing Bong one final time and he laughs and dances at joy and Riley's salvation. And then he fades away forever. In that moment, my heart did rejoice. It was kind of one of those, I wanted to stand up and shout moments. But in the same moment, I wept. I mean, really wept. Uncontrollably, surrounded by middle schoolers, flowing tears, heaving shoulders, that weird (laughs) noise you make when you really, really cry. Why? Why was that my response? Well, you see, deep down, I was moved because there's something about Bing Bong's sacrifice that is a greater picture of the gospel itself greater love has no one than this than he should lay down his life for his friends you know in reality sacrifice and the sacrifice of Jesus it's it's emotionally complex because there's both gratitude and grief as we partake of the lord's supper it's emotionally complex for us as believers we share in the bread and the cup, and we are meant to rejoice in Christ. We are meant to rejoice in his steadfast love for us. His body was torn. His blood was shed so that we might be pardoned and accepted and welcomed by God as dearly loved children. Coming to the table should be delightful. Delightful and even exhilarating in that sense, because the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient for our salvation. But we should also be filled with a real heaviness and a healthy grief as we share in these elements. Our pardon required the sacrifice of the very Son of God. Jesus endured the wrath that we deserved for our sin. We should have been crushed and torn apart, but he substituted himself for us. Coming to this table then should also be extremely weighty and perhaps even sorrowful because the sacrifice of Jesus was necessary for our salvation. As we come to the elements, we need to take in the full meaning of Jesus' death. We should experience a deep, weighty and pervasive kind of sober joy at this table. Thus far, we've seen that Jesus Christ is both a sovereign Savior and a sacrificial Savior. And before we move to the supper this morning, let's give our attention to one final point. Here it is. Jesus Christ is a sympathetic Savior. And this might be a strange request, but I want you to follow the pronouns as I read some key verses for us again. Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out, for you is the new covenant in my blood. <laughs> Luke 22 and the Lord's Supper are ultimately all about Jesus. But who is the supper for? The disciples. Hear me well. The death of Jesus Christ was not a sterile distant act undertaken in a vacuum. It is personal. The Lord's Supper is not a stale, empty ritual and tradition. It is personal. Deep affection and individual interest are at the heart of Jesus' life and death and at the very heart of this sacrament Jesus Christ is a personal, sympathetic Savior. He is a compassionate Savior who lives in real relationship with real people in real time. Unless we think too highly of the twelve disciples and too lowly of ourselves, let's remember the kind of men that Jesus is eating with here. Just after this meal, the disciples are going to argue about who is the greatest among them. Peter is going to deny Jesus Three, three times. The group, the group scatters like cockroaches when Jesus is betrayed in the garden. These are proud, weak, fearful, sinful men. But Jesus loved them to the very end. He wanted to be with them in this moment, and he died for them. And for us, you probably won't remember many individual sermons or, or lessons you hear over the course of your lifetime, and, and that is okay. Trust me, I'm the child of a Christian home and the child of a private Christian education. I have heard a lot, a lot of sermons in my 35 years. You know, as I reflected on this passage, there was a specific sermon that actually came back to mind for me. It was a sermon that I heard when I was a camp counselor, and there was a there's a quote that just has always lodged somewhere in the back of my head. Here it is: When he was on the cross, you were on his mind. When he was on the cross, you were on his mind. That's a little cliche, I know, but sometimes we do forget how intense and intentional the sympathy and compassion of Jesus really are. If you are looking to Christ by faith this morning, re- remember, Jesus lived and Jesus died for you. I, I, and I don't mean the cleaned up, polite, churchy version of you either. Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus handed the bread to Peter knowing that he would repeat, repeatedly deny him. Jesus passed the cup to Andrew and James knowing they would run away. Jesus gave the elements to Thomas knowing that he would doubt the resurrection. Listen. Jesus knows who you are. He knows how you've treated your friends and your co-workers and your spouse and your children this week. He knows how some of you have tried to escape from the craziness of this exhausting, disjointed season through, through, through the abuse of things like food and alcohol and prescription drugs and endless entertainment. Jesus knows all about the adultery you've committed countless times in front of a computer screen this week. He knows your lies, your greed, and your gossip. He is intimately acquainted with your anger and arrogance and cowardice. He knows how you have seriously doubted the goodness and faithfulness of God in the midst of hardships and pain. He knows all of it, all of it. And he still says, this is my body for you. This is my blood for you. Today we all do well to repent and believe the gospel afresh and in you. Jesus is a sympathetic Savior, and he knows and redeems broken people just like us. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you that Jesus is engaging in a grand, eternally significant kind of show and tell here in Luke 22. Jesus shows us that he is a sovereign, sacrificial, and sympathetic Savior, he tells us over and over again that he can and will do everything necessary to secure the glory of God and the eternal good of his people. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we are just about to celebrate, it is itself a grand showing and telling of Christ and his great saving work. As we come to this meal, to these simple elements, may we hear and see, and touch, and smell, and taste the promises of the gospel all over again. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize once again that we are a needy people. Thank you that you are a God who provides us with all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness in and through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things now in his name. Amen.